You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the honor and pleasure of chatting with Campari's Academy leader, Jessamine McClellan, and National Portfolio Ambassador for Campari America, Anne Louise Marquis. They shared with me their journey into the beverage world, how to make, get this, a delicious, perfect Aperol spritz, and their passion for the Negroni, and so much more. So grab yourself an Aperol spritz and be prepared to be inspired. and Jessamine, I'm so excited to welcome you both to Served Up. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think I'm going to start off with um, Anne-Louise. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you started your journey into the beverage world? Um, sure. Uh, how did I start? So I usually start the story actually in preschool. Um, cause I say a lot of what I learned in like what I do now, I learned from my grandmother and I learned in preschool. Um, I grew up in a, it wasn't a commune and it wasn't a cult. I have to be very clear. It was like a intentional community in Big Sur, California. Um, and so I learned a lot about living in community. Um, and so, and I also learned, I really loved theater. And so I grew up doing theater and living in this really wonderful community. Um, and as I got older, I pursued theater in college and after college and I, wasn't like necessarily very good at it, I guess. Um, and so I ended up like bartending and working in hospitality, like a lot of us, cause I wasn't an overnight sensation. Um, and I found the craft cocktail world and I just fell completely in love with it. And to me, the craft cocktail world was such a great symbiosis of, or synthesis of creativity and, um, sensory experience. And I loved that. And so for me, making cocktails was basically like making theater. And so I worked in craft cocktails um, for a few years here in LA, um, where I am now. And then I moved to New York City and I kind of fell into some really great opportunities um, working with some really fun people. My first job interview was um, at the <laughs> at this hotel in New York that was being consulted on by Richie Picado, Misty Kalkafin, Willie Shine, Justin Noel, Simon Ford, and Eric Alperin and John Lemaire. They were all consultants on this program. Wow. So those were my first people that I met in the industry in New York City. Um, like literally walked in one day, felt like fell into it, met everybody. Um, and so that's how I met everyone in the industry. And then I started hosting pop-ups um, kind of before it was cool. Um, we would host like these um, really fun kind of theatrically immersive sensory um, pop-up events. Um, and that was the way that I started getting people's attention. So when um, Pernod came to me and said, you know, do you want to come be a brand ambassador? I'd already been doing a lot of that work for so long before I even started working on a brand. So that's like the very short version is that I loved theater. I found cocktails. It scratched the same itch. And I've been doing that ever since. That's amazing. Um, same question for you, Jessamine. How did you start off in this industry? How did you get here? I feel like my journey has been a series of totally accidental passion projects. <laughs> so like many people, I never, I wasn't like, you know, when I grow up, I want to become a professional wine and spirits educator. Um, but, uh, you know, working on the supplier side, like, like Anne Louise and I do, many of us do end up in the restaurant side of things first. So for sure, that's where I got my start. Um, you know, I say that it's an accidental passion project because every time I thought I knew what I wanted to do with my life, I feel like where I ended up was, was just this, this thing that I did on the side to get me to another point, but then that ended up becoming my priority. So what I mean by that is that I got into the industry, um, because I became an esthetician. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically like a makeup artist, waxer, facialist type person. 
And I wanted to become a cosmetic formulator. And I had to go back to school for that to, to uh, learn about biochem, because that's the prerequisite <laughs> to making uh, cosmetics. And while I was in school, I realized that my scheduling was just totally bonkers. And I could no longer really be, you know, in these crazy science labs and also go to like photo shoots and do makeup like in randomly in San Francisco in the middle of the day. So all of a sudden I needed a totally regular job. And one of my best friends at the time was a bartender. And I just was like, that is so cool. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like barely 21 at this point. And I was like, I'm going to do it. And I was this bright eyed, bushy tailed, probably extremely annoyingly enthusiastic person that walked into restaurants and bars with zero experience and so much just all of the energy for it and was like, I'm going to be a bartender. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it works like you, you walk into a bunch of different places and, and people look at you kind of like you're insane. And then one of those places is desperate enough to hire you as a hostess. And then you just work your way up. And that's exactly what happened for me. And it was a uh, a bunch of random accidental things that happened after that, like one bartender left and moved and another one like no call, no showed. And they were like, Jessamine, you are up. It's time for you to learn how to bartend. And at the time I was still like memorizing the recipes for Cosmopolitans and other fruity martinis from a cocktail book. You know, this is like 2007 or something like that, 2005. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and that, that was kind of it. So I just, I started really in more of the casual world, but what catapulted me farther into this industry was certainly, you know, developing a passion for wine. Um, and I worked at, at several different wine focused places, which prompted me to, to really pursue education and become a certified SOM, which I did. And then that kind of led to fine dining, which of course, at this point I was like, what the heck am I doing? Still going to school for biochem. <laughs> Um, and that, that was definitely the, the real turning point for me, um, where, where I was like, I I'm going into restaurants full time. And also when I met my, um, now husband, but at the time, you know, he was a professional chef and was really striving to do fine dining and, and to be a part of that world. And, uh, I decided that that was for me as well. So my not like not super traditional, um, upbringing, after that was really in the Michelin world. And like a lot of people got to work for these amazing bar mentors, but I worked for like chef mentors. And a lot of my focus was really on hospitality and on, um, you know, creating incredible guest experience and utilizing, you know, as many fresh ingredients as you can in, in cocktails. And that's really where I, I cut my teeth. So mostly in California, but I was always super passionate about education. You know, I'm a self-proclaimed nerd, perpetual learner, however you want to call it. Um, I was always that jerk that was like, okay, guys, we're going to learn about something at lineup today. <laughs> and that, that ultimately led me to the ambassador world. So, you know, people see that and they see that kind of um, that knack for education. And, and uh, I became a brand ambassador and, and then I became a brand ambassador for different brands and uh, and now I'm, you know, I have my dream job, which is basically to go back to making cocktails and, you know, actually being a part of the on-premise side of things and still being a part very much of kind of working with brands, but also doing and creating education for bartenders and, and beyond. So I kind of get to dip my foot back in the other side of the world now. And that's, uh, that's my uh, life story. <laughs> that's an amazing journey. I mean, you know, you talk about learning from chefs versus the bartenders themselves. So you have a very unique um, journey that I'm sure that that lent to a lot of your creativity and understanding of flavors, you know, as well, if you're surrounded by chefs, especially if your hubby be a chef, that's pretty awesome. I'm lucky if my hubby can boil water, but <laughs> Jamie, and Jamie listens to this too. So sorry, James, but I want to. I want to flip this over to Anne Louise. Really, it really, you know, something that you both just touched on was, you know, hospitality and creating that theater and that warmth and that experience, right, for your guests. And being that the last year or so we've been on this complete lockdown with things opening back up, how do you see us really shifting or creating something brand new for our customers as we all desire to get the heck out of our houses, right? And go back to the bar, uh -huh. get our butts on those stools. So I'll start with Anne Louise. You know, how do you see things changing or or um, being new and fresh? I mean, I think it's going to be like starting all over again. Like, I think there's going to be some real challenges out there as like we got, I mean, we used to call them like rookies, right? Like bar rookies. I mean, everyone's now a rookie. 
So I think that we're going to have a lot of those growing pains as people get used to being back in social settings and used to being in connection with one another in a physical way. And I think there's going to be a lot of relearning that has to happen, um, both for the guest and how to be a good guest. We haven't had to do that in so long. And also in how to be a good host and, and what needs to shift in that way. I think there's just going to be a lot of, of the growing pains around that. I'm excited to see the thing that I am most excited and interested to see is that we have a, we've seen and we have this data and all this research to tell us that people have been making cocktails at home for a year. And so what's going to be interesting to me is to see these people who have been innovating and creating drinks at home and doing these challenges and taking online classes and consumers and, and guests, you know, day walkers have been making their own drinks. And how is that going to impact what happens now in the drink space? Is that going to create sort of a surge of interest? Are people going to be challenging bartenders to make, you know, and, and make more complicated or interesting drinks for them? Like, is the consumer palette going to kind of rapidly catch up to what we've been doing sort of on the more like cutting or growing edges of a flavor. It's going to be really interesting. Like in, in LA, vermouth was out of stock, like completely in June of last wow. year, there was no vermouth because everyone was making martinis. Like everyone had gotten through like, okay, I'm done drinking. Like, you know, my, I'm drinking like a lot of canned soda, you know, like um, RTDs and things like that, which what's also seeing is going to be another thing that I'm super interested to see where that goes with like pre-made pre-mixed drinks and bottled cans and cocktails. But like martinis were out. Everyone would come into um, my boyfriend owns a restaurant and bottle shop and people would come in and be like, we're going to try making um, this drink. It's called uh, a Sazerac. And he's like, OK, here's what you need. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how that translates to the on-premise experience. Um, and if that's kind of interesting, exciting for bartenders or if it's like a huge headache. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I would say like, look, and if my aunt Carolyn, who's almost 80 years old is making mojitos, so she likes to call she's been making mojitos for about 12 years, but now she's like Class. muddling fruit and all this fun stuff, you know, mm -hmm. over COVID, we've got to really step up our game if Auntie Carolyn's doing that. Jasmine, what, what do you think? Um, where do you think we'll be at as we reopen? Yeah, so I um, I totally agree with with so much of what Anne Louise said in in the sense that I am really excited to see those people who really took it upon themselves to kind of level up. Um, and you know, I was used to tell my staff, your, your guests are armed and dangerous in the sense you don't know how much someone knows when they sit down in front of your bar. And and I think that's still the case, and maybe even more so now that you know you have to kind of assume that people might know a lot and they might not know a lot, and and some people might care about knowing more, and other people might not. Right? You know, you're like I'm always guilty of being that person that's like, let me just like totally regurgitate the entire history of the Negroni on you. <laughs> even though you didn't ask, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, no, but, but joking aside, I think um, the opposite spectrum is that there's, there's probably going to be these people that are like, man, I tried cocktails at home and it's not for me. I'm super excited to get back and sit in a bar stool and have somebody else make me the perfect martini that I know how to make and definitely did it at home. But there's just something different about like the magic touch of being in a bar and having that whole ritual. So I think it could go both ways. And, and I think actually, if we think about that side of things, that, that perspective, it's almost like late leveling the playing field. We, you know, I feel like every bar that opened up in 2019 was all about like, how can we take things to the next level? And these things that go on Instagram and, you know, how do we turn your drink into an experience? Um, and now we're just like actually really grateful to even sit in a bar at a bar let alone whether or not your drink is like on fire or something, you know? So, so I think that's going to do a lot of really amazing things for people's creativity and gratitude for experience and expectations. Um, you know, we kind of feel like we got really spoiled in 2019 and we like, didn't really know how good we had it. And now we get to kind of re-enjoy all of those things that might seem so simple, but you know, are, are really important for every step of being in a restaurant or a bar. Absolutely. I mean, just getting back to the core of the meaning and the feeling and serving, right, of hospitality, you know, being the service to others and not to ourselves with the fancy cocktails and, you know, all that, but really just creating that warmth and that friendship where people want to return back, you know, to your, to your establishment. So I'm excited. I'm excited for everybody um, across the country right now that are reopening. And, you know, I do feel like um, this is the time 
for our industry to do a bit of a reset and to be better, to do better and um, to reinvent ourselves a bit. And with that comes some education, right? What I would love to talk, and I'm going to throw it over to Anne Louise right now, is a bit about Campari because, you know, you both represent Campari. And I just want to let you both know the first time I made a Negroni was in 1998 and it was at the Bellagio and Tony Abaganam taught us how to make it. We shook them. And <laughs> amazing. We, sh- we shook oh, them wow. because you shook everything oh during that time. This is 1998, yeah. folks. This yeah. is what you did. I'm not- it was martini time. It was like martinis, martini time. you know, blue cheese martinis and yeah, yeah. shook everything. I and will then, shamefully admit that I used to shake Manhattan's yep. when I first started bartending. Yeah. 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 That, that's just what you did. This is the uh, early 90s. So anybody who's like, oh my God. Secrets out. To this, Cats out of the yeah. bag, guys. Cats Sorry. out of the bag. We all didn't just, we're, weren't just born into like the whole second era of the cocktail. You know, we, yeah. were, we had to we had to do a lot of crap of the cocktail before we got there. But anyways, <laughs> but anyways, so it was the first time that I made one. And, you know, with the burnt orange, Dale came to the Bellagio. He taught all of us how to make the burnt orange and all that. And then eventually we would stir it and do it, you know, properly or on the rocks, right? But it was such a challenging cocktail during that time to get our customers really turned on to it, even though we had the international um, regulars and, and crowd. And it amazes me now in, you know, in 2021, how almost every cocktail menu or so many have like a Negroni on it. And I didn't even talk about Aperol yet, but we'll talk about Aperol as well. But it's incredible the awareness of this spirit, which can be a bit complicated to um, explain and to sometimes to mix with as well. So I do want to talk a bit about um, your educational efforts to get Campari on the scene. That we only have an hour today. So I'll go <laughs> quick. Um, but yeah, I would say. Um, so I would say that Campari really, so Campari acquired Sky Spirits in the nineties. Um, and Sky was, you know, obviously, and is our largest brand in the portfolio. Um, and it came in and they had, they brought in all their portfolio. And there was this question of like, what to do with these Italian products um, at the time. And, and the former um, CEO and head of the board, Jerry Rubo has this great story where he was like, the way we sell Campari is with the Negroni. He'll tell it. I mean, at some point you should get him on the show because he's he's a wealth of information and in, in industry history. But he really identified that the Negroni was the way we were going to share Campari um, with this country and in America. That was really going to be the approach um, because it went through craft cocktail bartenders. And we knew that craft cocktail bartenders were going to be the people that were going to start talking about our product first. Um, and we knew that because craft cocktail loves the difficult things. We love a challenge. Um, we love bitter flavors. We like the flavors on that cutting edge that, um, that other, you know, that we like to, we like to be the first in the know. And so we, um, we specifically went after the Negroni um, and wanted to educate that. Um, and that's how um, the partnership with Negroni Week occurred. That's how we started spreading the word around Negronis because for a really long time, the Negroni and Campari was such the insider handshake. And in the last, we can see it in the last 10 years, the American, well, the last 20 since essentially, I'm allowed to say Starbucks because it's not a, yeah, Starbucks. So like Starbucks shows up in the United States and we have, you know, the American palate starts to become more and more open to bitter flavors. Um, as we start to drink espresso, you know, every day people start drinking like, like rich coffee. Um, and the American palate has really evolved in the last, I mean, essentially 30 years since the slow food movement started, since espresso and coffee started coming, since people started eating things like arugula salads on every menu. Um, and so American palate has been catching up. The consumer palate has been catching up. And then the bartenders were really excited about Campari and about the Negroni. And those two things are really meeting, especially to your point right now. Someone the other day was like, well, you know, I wouldn't want to do anything as basic as a Mezcal Negroni. And I started laughing. I was like, oh my God, like what a, what a time to be alive that that's basic to you. Because I remember five years ago, that would not have been basic. So the thing that's magical about the Negroni, and I think the thing that we obviously love about it is that it's equal parts. It's an equal parts cocktail. So it's a drink that is endlessly mutable. It's endlessly variable. Um, we can play with so many different elements. As long as Campari is the heart of the Negroni, um, you can play with your vermouth. You can play with your other base ingredient. And the, the three of those ingredients playing together always create something interesting. So it's a drink that is, you know, takes a moment to learn and a lifetime to explore because there's just so many pieces to it. So I think that's why I think that drink really has staying power um, and then really drives a lot of our effort and education around the product. Um, so 
that the Negroni is no longer just a cocktail, but really a category and something we're encouraging people to explore what we call the Campari, or the Negroni family tree, that people can explore all these different branches of this tree, shooting out from the original um, Negroni into all these fun variations. So we have a lot more coming out from Campari, especially around Negroni week. Um, people will be able to learn more about the Negroni, um, but really that's been our, our focus on like educating bartenders about bitter, about um, Italian tradition and drinking culture, and then about the Negroni. That's amazing. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find information about Negroni Week? Yeah, uh, negroniweek.com. Super easy. Um, it's It starts September 13th this year. Um, traditionally, it's been in June, just but because of the last two years, we've pushed it back a little bit further in the season to make sure that this year we'll be able to actually do it in person. Um, and yeah, negroniweek.com. Great. Jasmine, I have a question for you about education as well, because I know that there's something really amazing called the um, Campari Academy. Can you tell our listeners what that is? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> so, um, I mean, when you think about the Campari Academy practically, of course, we are, you know, an education center of excellence. There's a physical brick and mortar that exists in New York, in Manhattan, in, the, in, in Midtown, in our, our corporate office at Bryant Park. Um, so one piece of it is that, you know, it's, it's a physical classroom where we, you know, educate bartenders and salespeople and, and, you know, for the most part, the trade, although we have done some consumer stuff there in the past. And, and our heavy focus is really on brand immersion and education and category knowledge and, and really kind of diving deep into those things. But more than a physical space, the academy really is also a concept. You know, it's it's the idea of digital community. It's the idea of education that expands beyond just traditional learning. So it's it's kind of also you know I don't want to call it a brand because it but kind of is it's kind of a brand within our our company and it it represents the educational arm of Campari America and in Campari Group really rather globally because there's academies that exist um, also outside of the U.S. So we're not the only academy. The, in fact, the original one is, is in Italy and it operates a little bit more as like a traditional bartending school where you can actually go and really like start at the bottom and learn everything you need to know about bartending. And then, you know, expands from there with, with much more advanced materials like masterclasses and they have guest speakers. And we focus here more so in the U.S. On, on more of what I would consider to be like our upper level education. So we do quite a bit of that category knowledge, like I mentioned, but we're also looking for, you know, how do we take something to the next level? I would say that for the most part, we've only really just gotten started <laughs> because, you know, I started with the company early 2019 and then, you know, we're sort of building the plane as we fly it all throughout 2019, like maybe kind of hitting a groove in the fall with the space. And then it's like, boom, 2020 is going to be like the year. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, we all know what happened. And in, in March, it was like, well, now we have to do something totally different. Um, and my, uh, my plan for 2020 became like what my plan for like five years from 2020 was supposed to be. <laughs> Where we, um, you know, our, our team is pretty small. We're, we're fairly lean in that sense. And, and Anne-Louise and another small group of, of people pretty much had to completely reinvent our entire plan for all of 2020 and turned it into a, a, a digital um, education program that, that, you know, thankfully with the help of our amazing brand ambassador team and our, the rest of our trade engagement team. Um, was able to do pretty rapidly. Um, and that and that kind of was Campari Academy for, for a year. Um, and now we're thinking again and reinventing ourselves again in 2021. And we'll see kind of where that takes us. But, you know, the short and sweet of it is that we're an education arm of the company and that means a lot of things. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, that's what my my day gig is, right? Being an education arm for Southern Glaciers. So I completely understand on having to just change direction really quickly and still providing really great education for the trade and for the sales teams that you deal with. Where can our listeners find more information about the Campari Academy? Well, our Instagram is probably the best place to find okay. stuff. So Camp, you know, it's at Campari Academy underscore US. And that not only do we have quite a lot of really amazing brand information that you can find on there on a daily basis, you know, I've, I've been very focused on making sure that 
it is an educational <laughs> stream of, of information, you know, that we, we're, we're putting out knowledge, but, um, you know, we're, we are actually about to launch our digital platform. So that's going to be really exciting. And um, that will very soon be available for people to start signing up and kind of get more access to what I would consider our on-demand content, right? You know, Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Campari mm-hmm. community and what and what we run on a weekly basis, um, you know, that, that Anne-Louise heads up is, is ultimately our ongoing programming currently. But, um, you know, everything that you've ever missed that you were like, man, I really wish I got to see that session. Uh, we'll be up there very soon, along with all sorts of other really cool nerdy treats. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's really exciting! I hope that you all come back and and you know talk about that, and that's wonderful. It really is. And Luis, I want to throw it back over to you really quick. We talked about education, but something else that happened during COVID is that we learned that you know there wasn't a lot of support out there for hospitality workers. Mm. Like at all on so many levels. We yeah. learned like yeah, too many tough lessons, right? And so I'd like to start off with you and let's just talk about this as we're coming out of it. You know, the support still isn't there, right? This is what I'm talking about, how we really kind of need to regroup, shift, and you know, hopefully come out of this with some great learnings on how to do better, to be better, and how to be more unified. Because um, and I've said this before in previous podcasts that we've done, is that our industry is not united, like let's say the airlines or Mm -hmm. the banks or anything with medical, you know, we're just not there. We are, we love each other. We're a great community, but however, we tend to work in silos. And so Mm -hmm. I would love to get your perspective on what was Campari doing to support the trade, of course, during the pandemic, what were some of the programs that you had? And then what are some changes that you hope to see You know, when it comes to really Mm -hmm. letting that support for our communities, because when something like this, God forbid, it happens again, that we're able to bounce back quicker. So I think I think your point about us not being like the airlines or like the banks is the thing is is because we're small businesses and small businesses just don't have the negotiating power or the lobbying power as as much as like a large multinational corporation can do. Um, And I think that's really where we saw a lot of the struggle was people saying we run small businesses, we're small operations, we might have one outlet, um, maybe two, maybe three, if we're lucky, Um, we're running on a less than 5% margin on a good day. And I think people really felt abandoned um, and unseen. Um, And that's just the business owners. Things weren't set up for business owners to succeed. And I think I think some state legislators did jump in and offer some solutions like drinks to go, you know, restrictions loosening and bottle shop laws changing. So now I'm seeing a lot of restaurants changing their business model to be able to use these tools. And, and these laws are now changing to be evergreen. They're going to be permanent, which is like the greatest thing. And if any legislator is listening in any state, like, please, please, the, the laws are antiquated. Please help us change them. And that, and that, the thing I just described is just the people that own businesses. Um, there were no resources and no help, let alone the people working in those businesses who really got stuck. And now we're seeing it on the other end as people don't want to go back to work because we don't want to return to the system of getting paid a minimum wage. The tip system is incredibly problematic. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff came out of last year in conversation. And I think a lot of our perception and understanding and the, the conversations have shifted very quickly. We've all learned a lot in the last year. So in terms of supporting the industry, I mean, Campari did a lot. I mean, as much as as we were able to in the moment and responding very quickly um, to supporting, making very large donations to another round, another rally, to supporting the USBG and a lot of what the USBG was doing um, across our brands and also as a corporate entity. Um, Also looking to bring in bartenders who were no longer working and bring them onto our sessions, bring them, make, you know, help them raise their visibility, help them, you know, get some money in their pockets with partnering with like programs like Portland Cocktail Week and bringing them on screen and getting them to talk and share and teach and train and educate and also continue to remind people that the bartenders are out there and they're very valuable. We already lost the skill of bartending once. We lost it at Prohibition. We don't want to lose it again. We've made such great strides. We can't lose it again. A lot of brands jumped in and made donations and tried to help where we could. Um, and I saw a lot of a lot of other portfolios also doing that. And was, a lot of us banded together and were talking about what we could do um, and applauding each other's efforts in it. 
And I think there's a lot more work to do um, as we go back into the world. Um, and that's from a industry and also from the consumers. We need to understand how much food costs and, and why a sandwich costs $15. There's a reason for it. And so I think a lot more transparency is going to come out. We're going to see a lot more about how, what that bottom line is, what that margin is. And if we want to keep restaurants around, we have to support them. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. There's just so much that we're learning and um, hopefully making some long lasting changes after coming out of this pandemic. Jasmine, I'd love to get your perspective. Um, You mentioned cocktails to go. And what do you think about that new avenue of revenue for our accounts, for our customers, for our friends? Do you see it lasting? Do you see it changing. God, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. I think, it, I, think it's <laughs> I, I hope it stays forever, but I'm just curious, you yeah. know, what you're seeing. I mean, I'm, I'm super excited for it. Uh, you know, apparently it took a pandemic to change legislature. That's super antiquated to be able to sell cocktails to go. I mean, obviously there were places that you could already do that. We all know and love new Orleans, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, like for plenty of places that have fairly restrictive laws, uh, you know, like California, for example, with that type of stuff, it suddenly became an entirely new revenue stream that's not only, um, you know, really profitable for bars and restaurants, but it's exciting to be able to put cocktails in vessels and sell them, which created a whole new drinks menu. It creates a whole new way to interact with your guests that's outside of your restaurant or bar. Um, And I think it also created some interactivity as well for, for people who you know, weren't necessarily getting it before. We, I think everybody learned, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, the importance of social media, for example. Um, but for many accounts to go cocktails suddenly became the thing that they were putting on there and that they were selling. And they were asking people to make them at home and post them on social media. And then also if they have questions about how to make them to reach out to them and, you know, get help making the cocktail, if it was one that required a, you know, some assembly required. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I thought that that was really exciting because that's that's part of that, you know, just going back to that theme of of like connection and hospitality is like some people might assume that a to go cocktail is this like autonomous thing that doesn't isn't, you know, isn't attached to a person at the other end of it. But I think that we actually discovered that wasn't the case and that people were still really excited to go to a bar and pick it up or, you know, have a driver come and drop it off on their doorstep and still feel like they were being a part of something and they were a part of that bar and that they were experiencing the creativity that 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 bar or restaurant was putting out. Um, So there's there's the kind of emotional aspect of to go cocktails that I think is is really exciting. And then there's also like the profitability aspect of it, which is is really exciting because even though it might have become quite literally a single stream of revenue for some places, um, I think that moving back into opening up and having it be an additional revenue stream is still really exciting and really appealing. Um, And not just for cocktails, but especially places that can now sell, you know, pre-portioned spirits. How cool is that for education? And, you know, like, I mean, I always used to tell people like flights are so passe, but like to go flights, (laughs) that's different, right? Um, You know, if you can sell someone pretty expensive spirits, say like, you know, high up age statement whiskeys or, you know, really hard to find allocated mezcals and stuff like that all of a sudden becomes like not only special, but you can't do that anywhere else. You actually can't, you know, maybe afford to buy all those bottles at once. And so you're suddenly getting experiences that that also didn't exist prior to it. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things to be really excited about to see how this evolves. And I'm really hopeful that a lot of the, you know, maybe <laughs> forced legislature changes that happen in the pandemic are, are you know, ultimately going to stay and that people can still have some flexibility. And, you know, we haven't really seen too much of it go back. Um, and, I, and I'm kind of hopeful that that continues to be the theme, because I think we'll just see more creativity and more ways to capitalize on it moving forward that that will really benefit bars and restaurants and also, you know, kind of be another form of education or interaction for consumers. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm, I'm also going to add, like, I, I heard it here first. <laughs> cocktails to go are going to turn into co- bottled cocktails that are on retail shelves. 
we're going to see bars and restaurants expanding their footprint and being able to reach further and reach more clients by selling their bottled cocktails or canned cocktails on retail shelves in stores across their cities, across their states, across the country. And that's going to drive visibility and awareness and create a more holistic brand for these companies, these, these restaurants and bars. So it, I think there's just like, I think we're only at the very beginning of what is going to become an explosion of canned cocktails um, and cocktails to go. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're just at the very beginning of that. And I'm so excited to see what happens. Like it's such an amazing opportunity for bartenders alone and businesses to be able to build their brands in a larger way. I'm excited about it too, because I mean, think about it. I mean, this is something we never did. We mentioned New Orleans with, you know, you have your drive-through decory place, but, but besides that, the rest of the country couldn't do it. So how is it, how exciting is it to be part of this change, part of this movement that is important to our friends, to our customers and to ourselves, to the consumer, to have that experience at home um, and to share and create, like you said, um, Jasmine, that just that emotional connection to the place that you love so much, you know, to your favorite restaurant, your favorite bar and to bring it home beyond the food, I think just, is really cool. Yeah. And and I have like one more, maybe parallel thought for, for to-go cocktails that, that isn't necessarily directly related to them, but more so how it might impact different aspects of, of our industry, right? You know, right now, when you go to like a festival or a concert, well, well, you know, right now we don't go to those yet, but (laughs) if you were to go to one before, you know, 2019, like the cocktail offerings might've been pretty limited, or, you know, you would only be happy if you were going to places that have really great production teams in place that are just smashing, you know, 500 craft cocktails, or they have cocktails on draft, or they've got all these different things that they're, that they're putting in place. But like what now are the opportunities for high volume like that or airlines or hotel rooms or poolside all i mean it's just like it's this whole thing that doesn't have to be to go anymore it's about pre-prepared and ready to open <laughs> and uh it's it's just a whole different uh landscape that i think is going to be really interesting that'll impact quite a lot of different avenues of our industry my god absolutely i'd like to shift gears for just a minute um with ann louise and let's talk a bit about aperol sure let's just talk about any time just talk is, about let's just let's talk, just about, talk it. about it let's talk about how delicious it is and how much i love the spritz <laughs> and how it wasn't available in the u.s for such a long time and now once again y'all did it because it's on every stinking menu <laughs> so just want to talk about there's like some magic that happens with your team right taking these italian spirits and making them so mainstream here in the u.s it is incredible the work that you all do it truly is so let's talk about that little spritz, shall we? I cannot take credit for that. I think that that spritz, I think, I mean, the thing, look, the thing about what Jasmine and I get to do is we work on the best brands. Um, and we, I mean, we truly believe that. We talk about it all the time, of like how lucky we are that we work on these incredible brands that really do the work for us. Like we, we show up and we get to tell you about it, but then you taste it and it's, you're sold. So, and they have history, they have um, heritage, they have people behind them. They have um, an entire cultural legacy um, of being deeply meaningful to the place they're from as well. So, I mean, we've worked hard on Aperol, but Aperol's also worked very hard for us. So, um, so yeah, so in a similar vein to what I was saying about the American palette changing, we've been in this process um, of like kind of post, um, post-depression, people literally eating like flour and water and, and these horrible, you know, like meals ready to eat and um, better living through chemistry. And as we've been coming out of that for the last 50, 60 years, 70 years now, and the slow food movement and people really wanting to know where things are from and really embracing the regionality of things, the regionality of flavors, and people started to travel and to um, actually drink and embrace and learning how to travel through food um, and, and really learning to embrace local flavors. So we see this happening, you know, in the last 20 years, people going to Italy finally and really traveling through Italy and coming back and going, we've had this drink called the spritz and it was really good. And it was sort of the ubiquitous thing. Everyone was drinking spritzes. I remember getting a text from a friend. She's like, have you heard of a spritz? I'm in Italy. It's all anyone drinks. And I was like, oh, I, I mean, I know about a spritzer, you know, like a white wine spritzer, but I hadn't heard about a spritz. And then the next year I heard about it everywhere. So the bartenders, again, were very much on the forefront of this um, and bringing this bitter flavors to, to consumers and getting people more comfortable with it. 
The thing about the spritz is that unlike any other product really in our portfolio, we have a one recipe approach. We only talk about the Aperol spritz. You will almost never see a variation on a spritz. You'll never see a different recipe on the spritz. You'll never see a drink made with Aperol coming from us, most likely, um, because we really need, and the, the goal in the US is to get people making the spritz the correct way. We have to walk before we run. And we've learned even in the last, Justin and I have been working on this brand for the last three years or so um, together. There's so much work still to do on educating people on how to make the correct spritz. So I'm going to say it because it's literally my job. I'm contractually obligated say anytime it. I talk about an Aperol spritz. An Aperol spritz. <laughs> you got to say it. Do it. Okay. It must be served in a wine glass. So ideally a stemmed wine glass. Then you fill that glass with ice and use lots of ice. Do me a favor. Do it for me. Fill it all the way to the top. We see so many Aperol spritzes with like two cubes of ice and it's so sad. So you want to fill that glass with ice next. And this is super counterintuitive, especially to bartenders and craft cocktail bartenders or or like club bartenders, because you learn to spirit to pour spirit first when you're doing like a one-in-one or, you know, simple kind of straightforward drink in a glass. But for the Aperol spritz, you pour the Prosecco first. So we use an acronym PASS, P-A-S-S, Prosecco, then Aperol because Aperol is heavier than Prosecco. So the Aperol will naturally float down through the Prosecco. And since this is on, on like stereo, you guys can't see me, but I'm moving my hands like a wave as we imagine the Aperol moving through those beautiful bubbles in the Prosecco. And then we top it with soda. So Prosecco, Aperol, soda, and then finish with a slice of orange. So PASS is a kind of a quick, easy acronym for remembering how to correctly make an Aperol spritz. Um, but the internet has really been the workhorse for us seeing this drink on Instagram. It's, um, you know, it's gone everywhere. It's literally gone viral. Um, and people see that drink and they want to order it. Um, so that's been a big part of this brand as well as people just seeing it. I call it the mojito effect or the mojito effect as your, as your great aunt would say the, the mojito effect of seeing a drink walk across a room. And it's just so beautiful. It's sunshine in a glass. It's Italy. It's a moment of, of aperitivo of conviviality of being together with friends. So I think there's a lot we haven't even seen from the Aperol Spritz and I'm excited for, for where it goes next. I'm thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) I got nothing else. You just dropped the mic right there. (laughs) Made me thirsty over here. Uh, But uh, I want to thank you both so much for being on Served Up today. And I know we just have a few minutes left, but I do want to close with, um, if you could both, Leave our listeners with some advice, some industry advice, whether um, they're just starting out or maybe they're, you know, a veteran. But I just would love to hear from the both of you. Um, Jasmine, would you like to start? Man, that's like, there's so many directions I could go with this. <laughs> no, but I, I, um, I think my, my advice is probably more for someone who's just starting out. Because I think actually we we just talked about how you know we are metaphorically starting over in so many ways with our industry currently, and I think that there are quite a lot of people coming to the industry that are new, and um, you know people who may have just started out or before the pandemic are now maybe some of our experts. <laughs> um, but but my my advice is is truly to just never stop learning, and I know that might sound a little corny, but. I think sometimes, I mean, especially coming from someone who's the the head of education, <laughs> uh, but like cliche or not, I I think it is truly what continues to drive us forward. And and learning can be a lot of things. It doesn't have to be reading a book. It doesn't have to be memorizing something. It can it can just be staying curious and being curious enough to want to pursue that itch. And I think that that's just really important for us to move forward, to learn new things, to learn old things and, and, you know, just never stop learning. And Luis, do you have some good advice to leave our industry with? I don't know if it's good advice. I mean, I have advice. Um, (laughs) No, no. I mean, I I think this is the advice I give everyone. It's like probably going to be put on my tombstone at this point. My, my advice is always do the job before you have the job. And that does not mean, and I need to make this explicitly clear, that does not mean work for free. Um, your time is valuable. You are valuable. Um, but the advice is that I, people come up to me a lot and they, they, want, they want help getting a job of some kind, whether it's a brand ambassador or they want to move up in the industry or they're looking for their place and they're try, trying to find their place. 
so much of our industry is undefined. So much is terra incognita that you can, you know, Jessamine had no idea this job existed because it literally didn't until she had it. My job didn't exist until I walked into my boss's office and I was like, this is the job I want. Bridget, I feel like the same thing is true for you, that you made up your job, essentially. My last three jobs (laughs) within the company. Yeah. Yes. I I feel you. I'm with you. And there's so much we can do, especially in this moment, as we're in this new transition, there are, our industry is about to be flooded with new people learning how to do this um, and learn this craft from us. Um, There's so much space to become an educator, to become um, a a manager, to move up in management, to um, open something if that's, if that's your dream, but there's so much you can do before you have that job to really set yourself up and put yourself in the in the, um, in the, the space so that when people think of that thing, they think of your name, putting yourself forward as an advocate, as an expert doing the work before you have the job is so important. And so often people say to me like, well, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want if that's like not worth it. It's not a waste of time. You will have learned something. Um, you have learned something and you will, you will grow from that experience, but not putting yourself out there, not, you know, not to quote Brene Brown, but like not putting yourself into the arena is not going to get you anywhere. Do the job before you have the job and the job will find you. I want to ask you about the follow-up question with that said, because mentorship is such a hot button. And to me, um, it's been important for my career. Without my mentors, I would say there's no way I would be where I am today. There's no way. And my mentors, you know, are Tony Abaganam, the modern mixologist, Mary Barranco, who's now the EVP, and McCormick Spices, my father and my mother. So those are my mentors. And but without them, I would uh, be still listening to Led Zeppelin in my Chevette and probably living <laughs> out of my Chevette. So I don't know. Thank God. You know, they got me up my butt and got me moving and they always do. But um, but I would love to know your take on mentorship. And I'll start with Anne Louise, you know, before we close out. It's incredibly important and it it can mean a lot of different things. The model that I highly recommend is to have um, a board. So to have like companies have a board of directors, um, I, I recommend and suggest having a board of directors for yourself um, and this sounds sort of silly and it's very much a thought exercise, but like I have people on my board that I consult and sometimes I consult the whole board and sometimes I consult different people um, for very different specific things. I had someone call me yesterday. A bartender was freaking out. He was very upset. Well, I shouldn't say that, but he was having a moment and he needed some guidance and he's like, you're on my board and I need you to help me. And it was great. And and then I, I, I talked him through this thing that he was really struggling with and we got there and he felt better. And, and he said it, he's like, you're, you know, you're my, you're the person I go to for this. So having different people that you reach out to, and I have people on my board, like, because I really value their opinion. And, and I, I say like, I don't know you that well, but I'm going to put you on my board and I'm going to ask you for help sometimes. So I think that's one way to do it. There's also like, you know, long lasting, like industry, you know, career long defining board. I mean, um, mentorship programs, but Um, or relationships you can have. But I really like being able to go to specific people when I have specific questions. And I often find they're really honored to help me figure out my way. I love that. A board. I need need to expand my board. It's great. It's great. (laughs) Uh, Desmond, what about you? What's your thoughts on mentorship? First of all, I love mentorship. And I think it's really important. Um, I'll just say actually that at Campari and Louise and I both participated in a mentorship program. We both have mentors. We have mentees. Um, we're also both on the spot, the speed rack advisory, um, mm-hmm. board mentorship program. So that, that is pretty awesome. So mentorship is all around us and the opportunities for it and how it's structured into our, into our industry, I think is becoming more and more important, but on, on a more personal level for me, I, um, I always say you are the average of the people you surround yourself with. And so I think for me, it's been so, so important, not only to surround myself with people that I think are incredibly inspiring and that maybe I'm even a little intimidated by, and that, (laughs) you know, I think they're so good at these things. And and there's a part of me that could even be like, just maybe slightly jealous (laughs) that I'm not that good, but Part of that is is about learning and is about being around people that that you're watching because mentorship doesn't have to be this structured thing where you're set up and paired and you know you you have this process. Mentorship can just be about observing each other and being around one another and learning, you know, micro learning from different behaviors and experiences. And the other part to all of that is 
is that the average portion, I guess, is it's like, for me, it's so important to include people who are not in this industry, right? Some of my best advice that I've ever been given comes from people who are totally have nothing to do with spirits industry. They're not bartenders. They don't work in the spirits world. You know, like that has truly been, I think the defining moments for me for like when I made really serious choices with my career, when I like negotiated salaries or benefits, like those are the super scary things (laughs) that, um, you know, sometimes you need to go to somebody, you know, like, I guess for me, that's, that was my dad, you know, like I, <laughs> I'm like, dad, help, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I also asked my brother, he's four years older than me. Like I, I'm, they're both in totally separate injury, in, like industries from me. And I think like, that's the kind of tough conversations that you want to have exposure to because our industry is still very much developing and there's stuff that isn't necessarily as concrete or set in stone as maybe some other corporates. Right. And this is my first like official corporate job, you know? (laughs) Um, And and prior to that, I mean, I'm sure I worked for corporate restaurants at some point, but um, you know, like we're still wild, wild west within the restaurant industry. So I think there's a lot to be learned from other other parallel industries that have similarities, but we also learn from. So um, I think there's also something to be said about mentorship that's not necessarily as tactical as that, but like people who are creative or artists or, you know, that separate one degree of separation from the industry, but, but it's so important to kind of inspire us. And, and, you know, that that's where those curiosities come from, right. But like never stop learning is like, you talk to someone and they, they're talking about this crazy photography project that they're on where they went to this place. And like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's actually a really amazing idea for how you could bring to life an educational concept. I mean, it's like, I find the weirdest things in the weirdest places. And I think that all has to do one way or another with, with mentorship. You know, it's not necessarily as, as tangible, like I said, as, as like a, this is my mentor and this is what they've done for me. But but learning all the time everywhere and drawing inspiration from that. And and I think the wider you cast your net, the more you'll benefit from it. That's fantastic advice from the both of you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you both for being on Served Up. I'm going to ask you both back right now. I hope yeah. you'll both come back on what? the show. Oh, always. I well, we'll we're just, just yeah. scratching that surface, ladies. We You need to come back, okay? We just want to hang out with you. So no, I love hanging fine. out with both of you too. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, but I do, I know, I want to wish you both um, great health during this time and a lot of peace from, from me oh, to you. Thank you. Real. Cheers. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!